We've all heard those uh, tragic stories where someone dies alone and it's a number of days before the body's discovered. You've heard those stories. I've heard a number of those stories. This week was the first time where I heard one of those stories, but it was about a church. Uh, it was uh, uh, 2008, and the uh, Russian Orthodox Church was responding to the growth uh, of church attendance across the country. And they were just looking for strategic places where they could add uh, add space, be able to accommodate more people. And as part of the plans, they targeted a uh, village named Komarova, some 300 kilometers northeast of Moscow. And it, it was a 200-year-old historic building, but for over a decade, they hadn't been able to hold uh, worship services there. And they decided now was the time. We'll open it up again and be able to invite people from the community to, uh, to worship there. Well, uh, they sent uh, officials out to the town and, uh, to see the, the condition of the church and what might be needed to get it ready to, uh, to commence services there again. But as they arrived, they had a little bit of difficulty finding the church. In fact, when they got to the location where they were told the church was, all that they could find was the foundation and parts of a wall. It seemed that the church had disappeared. They made investigation. They asked uh, villagers, and all that they were able to say with certainty was that in July of that year, uh, some people had seen the church intact. So they had a, uh, a church building standing in July, but in October, it was gone. They did further investigation and found that there were villagers from another, uh, another town had been slowly uh, disassembling and chiseling out bricks from this church piece by piece and selling them. Apparently, they got one ruble per brick, about two cents Canadian, and uh, they had been slowly dismantling this church and uh, selling, uh, selling, selling it to, uh, to someone where they could make a profit. The amazing thing to me about that story was that it had taken three months before anybody had uh, finally discovered, oh, the church is actually gone. There's nothing there anymore. It, it made me wonder, I wonder whether... Well, I, I'd hope that if these were ever to come to our church and take it apart and get, take car, cart off the bricks, I, I hope that it would not take three months for anyone to notice. I, I hope that we would be able to discover something had, uh, uh, was missing before then. But it did force me to ask some questions that I don't usually ask. Uh, questions like, how much is a building worth? Um, is it, is it worth more than two cents a brick? Uh, what, what does a building actually mean? Um, sometimes we hear people say, well, we shouldn't worry about the building, and we, God is just worried about people. So that's where our focus should be, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't even be thinking about things like that. Maybe that's true. Um, but we're in a series on revival. Uh, we have been traveling back in time to one of Israel's greatest but not very well-known kings, a king named Josiah. And 
under his leadership, there was this incredible revival in the land. And there seems to be a prominent attention given to a building in the course of that. And, and, and so part of the question that our text forces us to ask is, is there, is there a place for, a, does the building play a role in, in revival? And if so, what's, what's the connection? What, what, is about, what does the, 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 the building mean in God's eyes? And how should we think about it in light of Scripture and God's values and what he's doing in this world? Those aren't questions that we typically think about. There's, and, and yet, our passage this morning uh, forces us to ask them and I believe uh, gives us some answers as we try to think through them. Uh, I titled my message, It Seems That the Building Matters, but you may be surprised how I see the scriptures responding to uh, this topic and some of the, uh, the questions that are before us. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me. We are in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 3. Uh, you've got a pew Bible in front of you there. It's on page 306. And if you have that open before you, I'll be, I, I'm, I'm going to read through it right now and uh, uh, just keep it open because we'll be walking right through that passage. 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 3 to 7. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is to the carpenters, and to the builders, and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their, into their hand, for they deal honestly. This is, this is the word of God. Now the first lesson this passage gives us, I believe, is that the building can reflect which God we worship. What I mean by that is it, it reflects something about our faith. So, for instance, if uh, a historic church building gets turned into a yoga studio or a microbrewery, if you don't really care much about God, that, that won't be much of a deal to you. But if you are committed to, committed to God and, and see some of those things taking happen, it, it'll affect you differently. You will see the, see the world differently. The so building can reflect which God we worship. Now, Josiah is one of the godliest kings in Israel's history, but as I said, few people know much about him. He's one of only two kings said to have walked in all the way of David. And the revival that broke out under his leadership, and which he was really at the center of, was unparalleled. It was striking what happened under, uh, under, under him. But Despite that, the Bible really doesn't give us a lot of details about his life. It doesn't, doesn't tell us everything that we'd like to know. It, some, uh, in 2 Kings, it gives us a couple chapters. In, in 2 Chronicles, we get uh, about the same amount of material. So compared to David, we, we know much less about him. Despite that, the very first thing that we're told about him, after these summary statements that we looked at last time, that he was a, a great king and 
He, he walked in all the ways of David, his father, didn't swerve to the right or the left. After those summary statements of how righteous he was, how godly a king he was, the very first thing the Bible chooses to reveal to us about his life is that he cared about the temple and cared enough to see it rebuilt, see it repaired, see it restored. Now, we learned last time in verse 1 that he was made king at just eight years old. So he comes to the throne too early for him to really be able to rule. Then we learn in 2 Chronicles 34 that at age 16, he began, he began, and it says, to seek the God of David. So he's king at eight. At 16, he, he develops his personal faith, begins to, to seek God, to desire to know God, to walk with God uh, as he's just a teenager. Then it tells us, again in 2 Chronicles 34, that four years after that, he began to confront the nation's idolatry. So at 16, personal faith. At age 20, he now begins to function in his role as king as, uh, as something of a spiritual leader. He is going to not only deal with the sin in his own heart, at age 20 he realizes, if I am going to rule this nation, I need to I need to provide spiritual leadership for them. I need to call people back to the true God. I need to confront the idols that have kept people from him, deal with the obstacles that stand in the way. As we get to our passage this morning, he's 26 now. Six years have passed since then, and he is beginning to come into his own as a leader. And as he does, he gives himself to the repair of the temple. He recognizes that if God is going to be honored in their midst, things will need to change in the appearance of this temple. If God is going to be honored, it won't do for there to be potholes in the driveway or cracked toilet seats in the WC. There there needs to be something that reflects the glory of who it is that dwells in their midst. And and so he sets about uh, to make uh, repairs and to to, uh, bring bring glory back to this building. Interestingly, as he does this, he he has his own resources. Uh, The king, obviously a wealthy man, and he he no doubt gave generously to this project. But he didn't do it on his own. In our passage this morning, in verse 4, you see him taking up collections from all the people. Josiah knows that if this building is to reflect the glory of God and the love of his people, then it needs to come from all of his people. That the people's offerings are an important expression of their faith, their devotion to God. That the building is a reflection in many ways of the God that they worship and the love that they have for him. What I want you to see this morning, though, is that this, what we see here in these these short few verses isn't just a sideline, isn't just... Uh, a little aside to tell you some, some quirky thing about something that happened in his life, but this is actually a pattern in, in Scripture. Revival in Israel wasn't a common thing, but when it came, it almost invariably was accompanied by a restoration of the temple, by people giving themselves to bring honor to this uh, building that they were a part of. It was accompanied by temple repairs. And interestingly, God seems to 
care enough about it to give attention to it in Scripture. You, you can see in Scripture the things that God cares about by the, the uh, amount of space that he devotes to them. And as a pattern, to show a pattern, to show that this is a reflection of the people's faith, how they respond and how they treat this temple that God has uh, given them, he returns to the theme again and again and to highlight it in our minds. It seems to matter to him. One of those, one of those times in Israel's history where there, there was this revival and accompanied by uh, a, a renewal of the temple was under King Jeho- Jehoash. Jehoash was a king with a long godly reign. Good king. Presumably, he did a lot of good things. It, it tells us as a summary statement what a good king he was, how godly he was. But interestingly, despite him being a good king and living for such a long time, the only three things that were told about his life are the repairs he made to the temple, the offerings he encouraged people to give, and the care that he took to make sure that the offerings that people gave actually went to the, the work and repairs of the temple that they were giving towards. When his faith was renewed, it was reflected in his care for this uh, temple that, in, in which God had revealed himself to the people. And the people's faith, as it was renewed, similarly, was reflected in the sacrifices that they made, the offerings that they gave, and the commitment that they had. It was the same in the case of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was another one of the good kings. He was one of the great kings. He led the people back to the Lord. He guided them in righteousness. But despite all of the good things that King Hezekiah did, the very first thing the scripture chooses to record for us in 2 Chronicles 29.3 is that he repaired the temple. 2 Chronicles 29.3 says, In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now, uh, it's raining outside. Uh, I, I, I'm, I happen to have opened the door for some of you this morning. But what he was doing in Second in Chronicles 29.3 was not just opening the doors. He was literally opening the doors. They, he was having to open the door because under his father, King Ahaz, the doors to the temple had literally been closed. They had been bordered shut. King Ahaz, as a reflection of his faith and the God that he worshipped, closed the doors to the temples, to the temple, so that people would not worship the God of the Bible and instead worship his gods. And so that was, in a sense, a reflection of his faith. Now you have King Hezekiah as his first order of business. He is going to open those doors. He is going to restore the temple and see to its repairs. The same, is, same kind of thing is going on today in one sense. In, in one sense, today too, our faith is reflected in our buildings. Some of you may have seen this. Some of you may have heard of this. A CBC article in, I believe it was March of this year, reported that 9,000 religious buildings will close or be repurposed over the next decade. That makes up uh, a full one-third of all religious buildings uh, across the country. 
some of them will be turned into yoga studios. Some of them will become microbreweries. Some of them will become cool vintage concert halls and community centers. They will be repurposed to many things, but nobody says that one-third of uh, a nation's religious buildings being repurposed, sold, or torn down doesn't say something about the people's faith. It, it clearly shows something about the spiritual decline in our nation today and the anticipated spiritual decline that at least a, uh, a study reported by a CBC journalist believes will continue to take place over the next 10 years. The state of our building as a church says, surely says something about our faith as well. It expresses something of our faith to the community around us. I get more comments about our, our building from people in our community than, than most of you because they, they come to me, I'm in the office, or uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, uh, the first person that, uh, that gets called upon. But it's interesting to me the, the responses that I, that I do hear. It was interesting... If you were going to, maybe if you lived in a small, older home in a bigger lot and bulldozers showed up on, uh, on your, your lot, most of your neighbors would probably be concerned. They'd probably be concerned that you were going to build a big, huge uh, uh, house to, to replace your smaller house. And, and those are the kinds of, of concerns that you might uh, uh, expect to, to hear from your neighbors. Interestingly, when bulldozers arrived for the construction of our parking lot this spring, I had many people come to me. I heard from many of our neighbors. Interestingly, not a single one of our neighbors came up to us expressing concern that we might be building a bigger church building. Nobody was worried about that. Uh, they were concerned, but they were concerned that we might be closing up shop and going home. They were concerned that we might be leaving and that when we leave, that one of those big condominiums would go in our place and they'd like having some space beside them in a parking lot and a little bit of grass. And so that, that was the concern that they came to express. I, I was glad on one hand that they were that they appreciated having us here. But on the other hand, I was thinking, I'm not sure that we have communicated a great sense of vitality about what's actually happening on this property by the building that we have on our screen before you. I, I, I'm not a prophet. I don't make predictions, and so I don't, I don't know. But I, I have a theory. You may have heard, both from me and from previous pastors, that one of the things that real estate agents and developers do is they like to come and knock on our door. They knock on our door regularly and they come and they ask, are we willing to sell? Are you interested in moving away? And, and this is my theory. I've, I, I believe that the, it, it, uh, my experience has been, it doesn't matter how emphatically or how many times I tell them, we're not moving, we're not shutting down, we're not moving on, you know, we're staying here, we've got a few, it doesn't matter how many times I say that, they keep coming. And I think it's for two reasons. One is that, yeah, we have a, 
an attractive piece of real estate in the corner of Bathurst and Weldrick Road. That, that's one of the reasons. But I think people have been tempted to think that's the only reason. I think there's a second reason, just a theory. But I think the second reason is that vultures tend to fly around dead carcasses. And, and the message that our building has maybe unwittingly sent to some people in our community and some developers in, that are driving past is, I'm not sure whether there's much going on there. It could be that that is the message that, that we've communicated. And you can feel free to ask me a year from now, but the, the investment that has been made in our parking lot, uh, a parking lot that now is, uh, it's not only bigger, it's beautiful, it, it glorifies God. I believe it says something, communicates something to our, uh, our, communi- our community. And... It's my, my theory that the developers and the real estate agents, at least for the time being, will not be coming. Because it communicates there's something alive here. There's something going on here. And for most people that are driving by, not seeing anything that's happening inside these walls, that may be the only uh, message that they hear. And so the building communicates something about the faith of the people communicate something about the God that we worship. And the, the, the parking lot that God has provided speaks something of his goodness, of his generosity, and uh, speaks to his glory. The building can also reflect how much we value God. To some thieves in rural Russia, God was worth about two cents a brick. That's, that's about it. Every time we open our wallet, we make a decision about what's important to us. We make a decision about what we value. Because what, what, what we, we can make decisions. We, we've got choices. We've got options. And so the building can reflect how much we value God. Now, when Josiah began his repairs, we saw in verse 4, he took up a collection. He's a wealthy man. He's a king. Maybe he could have he could have skimped by and, and, and done the repairs himself, but he deliberately didn't do that. He didn't carry out the temple repairs with just his own resources. He didn't car- carry out those temple repairs through a general state tax. He deliberately went to the people, took up a collection, and called them to give and to give freely. Because he knew that if this temple was to give glory to God, it would come as people sacrificed and gave of themselves, gave of their resources, and expressed through their givings the value that they had for God. The people gave generously. And they gave generously because of what the temple meant to them. They didn't give, the the temple wasn't precious to them just because it was a really cool building, and it was. They, they didn't, it, it wasn't precious to them just because it was very ornate with, with some really special uh, uh, ornaments and, 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 and things that were a part of the architecture. All of those things were true, but that was what was special about the temple. In Exodus 25:8, God had said to the people, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And they recognized that the temple was the means by which a holy, all-powerful God could meet with regular, 
sinful people who fall short. And they saw this as a great privilege. They recognized that if, if there is this, this all-powerful God who dwells in our midst, we have one that we can seek for wisdom. We have one that we can go to for help. We have one who is with us, our strength. And so they had this uh, sense of, of, his, of his generosity and grace. They had a sense of privilege that God would dwell in their midst. And so as they looked to the temple, it was precious to them because their God was precious to them. And so they wanted the building to reflect how highly they valued him. And they weren't alone. We see this again probably the most, uh, most prominently in the life of King David. He felt the privilege of having God dwell in the midst of his people. He had experienced the presence of God. He had experienced the victories that God brought. He knew that even as great a warrior as he was, he couldn't take credit for the victories that God had brought. He knew that they came from him. And he felt a sense of, of gratefulness, of devotion as a result. And so as he looked at his own home, and as he looked at the place where God dwelt, he said, this isn't right. There's something very wrong here. And so he called the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, and he said, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, in one sense, it was an amazing thing for David to make this statement, to make this request. He, he recognized that for God to dwell in a tent and for him to dwell in this, in this grand home, that just, didn't, that just didn't sit well with him. But it's amazing he makes this request because if you've read the Old Testament, if you've read through the book of Exodus, you know chapter on chapter after chapter of God's explicit, detailed, comprehensive descriptions of exactly the kind of dwelling that he wants in the creation of the tabernacle. It was a big tent. And David says, we can't have God living in a tent. We can't have him dwelling in, in this place. And yet God had told him, that's where I want you to have me dwell. And the thing that brought about this in David's heart was he recognized as they were coming out of Egypt, as they were delivered, as they were wandering on their way to the promised land, everybody lived in a tent. Everybody had to live in a tent. They were, they were traveling light. They were on their way to another place, but now they had arrived in the promised land. And when they arrived, guess what? Everybody wasn't going crazy trying to build their own homes. You know why? Because God had brought judgment on the people before them, drove, driven them out, and provided homes for them to live in. God had provided generously for the people, and now the people are living in these homes that God has provided, and he's still in the tent. And David said, that's not right. David's th thinking, here I am set up in the Fairmont Hotel, and God's still in Motel 6. It, it just, that just doesn't feel right. That doesn't reflect what we've, what, how we feel about him, how we love him. That doesn't reflect how we value him, how precious he is. And so he set about uh, and, and expressed his desire to build a temple. 
Unfortunately, what, what happened in David's life isn't always the experience of the people of God. Sometimes people of God just don't care what the building looks like. After the exile, for instance, the Israelites had returned to the land and they returned to an obliterated temple. They had come out of exile in Babylon and, and as they returned, like the Babylonians had flattened their temple. They had destroyed it. And the people returned to the land and they said, they saw the temple, they saw the remains. It looked a little bit like the, the church that had been taken apart in Komarova, Russia. They saw that and they said, yeah, that's not so great, but we got we to gotta put a roof over our head. And we need, to, we need to establish ourselves in the land. And they begin to build their homes. They begin to establish themselves. And once they had begun building their homes, they're like, well, we got to upgrade our homes now. And they start putting in this, this uh, cedar paneling that, they, that uh, was all of the rage at the time. And they start making greater enhancements to their properties. And God sends them a prophet to say, that's not okay. It's, it's not okay for, for this reason. Listen to what he says through, through the prophet Haggai in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The message was that treating yourself and skimping on God reflects a heart in need of revival. It, it reflects something about the reality of the heart and the faith that mere words couldn't, couldn't really determine, right? We can say a lot of things about what we believe, about what's important to us, about how we feel about God, but he's saying... No, you've, you have shown through your decisions where your real priorities lie. And those priorities are in need of revival. The building can reflect how much we value God. Now, if we just left our study here, there probably would be some confusion and misunderstanding. Because you probably know that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 and it hasn't been rebuilt. And so things have changed. The building isn't what it was. But the scripture says that it's so much more. The temple we read about in the Old Testament isn't the same as this church building. This isn't, in one sense, God's house. This isn't sacred space. But the temple was pointing to something far greater. And I want to unpack that for you this morning. I said earlier that the glory of the temple wasn't in the beauty of the architecture. It wasn't in the, the, the gold. It wasn't in the, the, the accessories. It was glorious because it was a place where God dwelt with his people. It was the house of God because it was there that people could meet with him that they could receive forgiveness, that they could express their devotion, that they could bring praise to him. But when Jesus came, he said of himself in Matthew, in Matthew 12, 6, something greater than the temple is here. 
they knew the building and the, bu- the building under King Herod's day had been further glorified, few- further enhanced. And Jesus to- says to Jews who had seen that all of their lives is one of the most beautiful and awe-inspiring pieces of architecture and, and, and a place to meet with God. He said, something greater than that is here. And he was pointing to himself. In Luke 21.6, he predicted that the temple would be destroyed. That the old way of relating to God would come to an end. And it would be replaced with something greater. In John chapter 2, Jesus called his own body the temple. And what he meant was that God no longer dwells in a building in Jerusalem. God is no longer limited by geography. What he was revealing there was that all of the things that people used to do in the temple and the things that they used to find in the temple, they would now find in himself. Now we go to Jesus to find forgiveness. Now we go to Jesus to express our devotion and gratefulness. Now we go to him to experience the presence and the power of God. But that's not the end of the story. Because when Jesus ascended to heaven, he promised and then poured out the Holy Spirit. So that we would then receive his spirit, we would become the means by which he would connect with and meet with the people of this world. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul asks, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That... Here, he's not just talking to individuals. He's talking to the gathered believers. That when people gather as the people of God, as the church, God dwells in their midst. That, that the Spirit is present in our, in our midst and he ministers to people. He meets with people. So God doesn't live in a building anymore. He lives in the midst of his people. You can meet with him whenever you gather with the people of God. And so we no longer worship in the temple, we worship as the temple. This is no longer, we no no longer consider this God's house, although sometimes people use that language. This is not God's house, this is not sacred space, but this is a sacred meeting. That this building is not holy, but this meeting, uh, this gathering of believers is holy because it is where believers gather that God reveals himself, that he calls people to himself. So where does that leave us? Does the building that we worship in, does it still reflect which God we worship and what we think of him? I think it does. You've all driven past those churches with a sign on them in like July or August that says, closed for the summer, see you in September. You drive past the church, you read the sign and you think, I think that, I'm not sure, but that seems to give me an indication of what might be going on inside. I, it tells me something about the people's faith. You've all driven by neighbors' homes where the windows are broken and the lawn ornaments are outdated and the weeds are overgrown. You've, you've maybe drawn some conclusions about the people inside before even meeting them. The, the exterior said something to you. 
And the same is true of our church building. As people drive past our church, they make conclusions about us. They haven't been there. They, they don't know us. They, they, they haven't met us personally. So this is, that's all they have to go on. They look at the outside. They draw conclusions about how much we value God. How much we value ourselves in comparison to God. They make conclusions about the message that we care to express to our community. And our new parking lot, in the light of all of that, it's not going to bring revival. Even a new church building isn't going to, in itself, bring revival. But it does communicate something to the people around us of the faith of the people who worship here. It says something about the value that we place on our God. And it says something about the care that we have for the people around us and the message that we desire to share. And it's our desire that as God revives us, as God brings about what he did in Josiah's life and Hezekiah's life and David's life, as he brings about revival in our hearts, it's going to be reflected. We're going to see the world differently. We see it with different eyes and we see the building that we that we serve and worship in through different eyes and we desire to honor God as holy in our midst because we believe that it is precious that a holy, all-powerful God would desire to meet with us as his people. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's amazing to us that you would desire to meet with us that you would be pleased to dwell in our midst, to come in the midst of our gatherings by your Spirit and reveal yourself. We know our failings and our sin, and so your grace to us in Christ overwhelms us. We praise you for the great truth that when we gather, we're a holy temple where you reside and where you're pleased to reside. Help us to show the community how much we value you, how precious you are to us. Help us to reflect how much you mean to us and how we use our money. And help us to make time for the fellowship with others where you promise to show yourself and to be present in our midst. For we praise you in the great name of Jesus Christ.